Well, we're, <clears throat> we are beginning today uh, to teach the gospel according to John. We have not resumed that teaching in some time due to the inclement weather that we've had. Uh, and I am at home uh, in my study because we have some water problems still at the church and have therefore canceled our Wednesday night service per se. But uh, we're going to have a lesson, and we're going to resume our study of the book of John. Earlier, you may recall, I began a study of John five eighteen through 24 by way of the doctrine of the essence of God. I want to review some of that learned, and then we will begin new material at point four on page three of our written outline. Now let's return to, to the study of John chapter five, verses 18 through 24, entitled Jesus' Equality with God. And I'm going to read, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I want to repeat John 5:24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. These verses cause us to study the doctrine of the essence of God, and it's been some time since we started that study, so we'll have quite a bit of review, and then we'll we'll get new material later. But let's go ahead with the review. Point one, God is one in essence. That is to say, the divine essences are resident in each member of the Godhead. 
Two, there are three personalities, but one in essence. Such essences are shared equally since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And then we documented that earlier when we began the doctrine of the essence of God by reading Isaiah 48.16, Matthew 3.16 and 17, and Colossians 2.9. The Godhead, as can be seen from the above-cited verses, is made up of three personalities or manifestations. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The personalities of the Trinity are related, just as there is one egg... There is also the yolk, the white, and the shell, yet one egg. And we documented that by reading John 10, 30, 17, 11, and John 7, 37, 38, and 39. 2.2. So you can see from these verses the intertwining of the several and collective personalities of the Trinity are uniquely three in one, separate but one. Now for a review, point three. The essences of God are prevalent in each member of the Trinity. There are ten which have been listed by Colonel R.B. Thiem, and I think he did a great job of coming up with the ten though there may very well be others. But let me give you his ten. One is sovereignty. Two is righteousness. Three is justice. Four is love. Five is eternal life. Six is omniscience. Seven is omnipresence. Eight is omnipotence. Nine is immutability. And ten is veracity. Then uh, we took a look at each one individually with a few points of explanation. First, sovereignty. He has supreme volition and always has possessed the powerful rulership of all things. There is no higher power or higher volition than God. All things are subject unto him. Everything falls under the permissive will of God. God desires the best for us, but because of our volition and imperfect choices, He provides less than the best, but perfect. God is sovereign, and there will come a time at the second advent when the Father will say to the Son, Now is your time. Implement Operation Footstool. Until then, however, the Lord laughs from heaven at how serious man's con- man considers him and herself. And then we documented that by reading Psalm 2, 1 through 4, Psalm 100, verse 3, Psalm 104, 
verses 17 through 35, Isaiah 4, verse 23, Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, Romans 14, verse 11, and Revelation 5, 13. We then begin the study of the second of the ten essences. Righteousness. God is absolute righteousness. His righteousness is independent and incomparable. The righteousness of God cannot have fellowship with the righteousness of man. And since man's righteousness is like filthy rags, a problem exists. But thankfully, God solved that problem. God recognized man's problem in eternity past and made provision for the problem. How? Through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And then we documented that by reading Isaiah 64, 6, Psalm 116, verse 5, Psalm 145, verse 17, Romans 3, verse 22, and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Then we move to a study of the third of the essences, justice. God is fair. It is impossible for him to be unfair. The holiness of God is made up of his righteousness plus his justice. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God must execute. A very interesting concept, so I'm going to read it again. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God must execute. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because of the efficacious, meaning effective, because of the efficacious sacrifice of Christ on the cross, God is free to deal with us as family. This because his righteousness was satisfied and therefore his justice must execute what his righteousness demands. God is absolutely just because there is no iniquity in him. There are two ways, or let's say two laws of God which come from his righteousness as relates to the believer's discipline. And we spent some time on these two laws. The first law was the law of volitional responsibility. God permits natural results of sin. Proverbs 5, 1 through 15. Hosea 8, 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7. And Galatians 6, 7. And then we looked at that second law. The law of divine corrective action. God corrects to improve. So says Romans 5, 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, Hebrews 5, 8 and 12, 11. So the justice of God works with the unbeliever in order to provide maximum, <coughs> excuse me, The justice of God works with the unbeliever in order to provide maximum environment, pressure, and or reward to facilitate faith in Christ. The scriptures make clear, clear, mankind is without excuse. Never can it be said that God is not just and righteous. 
And then we documented that by taking a look at Psalm 89, 14, John 1, 9, Acts 3, 14, Romans 1, 28, and chapter 2, verse 1, Titus 2, 11, 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10, and Revelation 15, 3. And then we actually now begin new material with the fourth essence, which is love. The scriptures tell us God is love. And yet the scriptures indicate there are two kinds of love. To understand divine or human love, we must know Bible doctrine. There is love, which is an agape type love. The love, called agape love, depends on the subject to produce the action of love. For example, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then Ephesians 5.25 with reference to the right man and the right woman in marriage. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for us. Excuse me, for her. In this particular application, an interesting concept and something that all men must do. But today, we have serious problems in the area of marriage. But let's continue on. Agape love is love from the ultimate, in the case of God, from his essence. In the case of mankind, this type of love can only come from pregnant doctrine metabolized in the soul. And we've talked about the concept of metabolized doctrine previously. So if a lady wants a man who will truly love her, she needs to find a man who has metabolized doctrine in his soul. Now we can better understand why agape love must be produced by the believer. That is to say only God or, better said, metabolized doctrine in the soul of a believer can produce agape love. Then there is a Greek word, phileo, the verb, philos, the noun. So there is a phileo love which comes as an emotional response because the object of the verb produces the action, not the subject. In the case of agape love, the subject produces it. But in the case of phileo, the object produces it. Example, one may love ice cream because of the nature of the ice cream. One may love chocolate because of the nature of the chocolate. One may love a friend or sweetheart because of the pleasant and appealing nature of the object of the verb. Our study relates to an essence of God which is the agape type. God always has the right mental attitude toward us. It has nothing to do with the object, that is us. 
Only the righteousness of God is satisfied. Once the righteousness of God is satisfied, then God is free to love us not only with agape love, but even with a philos kind of love. Example, God has both agape and philos love for Jesus and for the believer when we are obedient. All right, for our fifth essence, eternal life. There never was a time when God was not. He always has been. We have as believers, and in a sense, so does the unbeliever, have everlasting life, whereas God has eternal life. Everlasting life has a beginning but no ending. Eternal life has no beginning and no ending. Notice Revelation 1.8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. And Revelation 1.11, saying I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and watch what thou seest, a reference to John, who's ordered to write And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Revelation 21, 6. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And then in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then, of course, Isaiah 48.16 and 17, which I like to call... Uh, the Eternal Life Conference, and these are the minutes of that conference. Here we go. As Christ speaks, come, come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I, and now the Lord God in his spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. And now for our sixth essence, omniscience. God knows all things. He is all-knowing and is not limited by time or choices. God knows the end and the beginning as we have seen. Nothing has been hidden from him. So says several verses, which I shall read. Psalm 147, 4 and 5. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. And then Isaiah 46, 10. I will make known the end from the beginning 
from the ancient times which is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And then Isaiah 41, 26. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know or beforehand so we could say he was right. No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. And then for poor old Job, Job 37, 16, is God made seven exclamations to Job so he would know that what is happening to him is God's will. He said, do you know the clouds hang poised? Those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge. And of course, his whole, God's whole point in that dissertation was, if you know all these things, if you know when I hung the stars in place, etc., etc., uh, then you can question me. But otherwise, just accept what is happening to you and thank him in all things. Difficult. Especially for poor old Job. But it's often difficult for us too. Certainly the scriptures teach God's love and knowledge all being a part of his omniscience. Alright, let's look at our seventh essence. Omnipresence. God is ever present. A difficult concept beyond both empiricism and rationalism. God is not limited by time or space. God is both a product of effect outside the mind, inherent with all and beyond the limits of experience. God is therefore in the heaven and the earth simultaneously. Jesus is agreeing to become human involved the imposition of many self-imposed restrictions, not the least which his omnipresence. He agreed to be in one place at one time for the very first time. He is omnipresence, agreeing to be spatially limited and time limited. So let's look at two sobering thoughts. You and I cannot experience, or excuse me, you and I cannot escape the presence of God. He therefore does not ever leave us even in times of great distress. Notice Jeremiah sixteen seventeen. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And 1 Kings 8.27 But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And Isaiah 66.1 This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? And Deuteronomy 4.39 Acknowledge and take heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. 
there is no other. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, weeping, excuse me, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. All right, the eighth of the ten essences, omnipotent. God is all-powerful and limitless in ability. For example, God is mighty to save those who believe. To believers, he makes known what is the exceeding greatness of his power. He is mighty to keep the believer and nothing and no one can remove us from the earth until it is the Lord's time. There is nothing too hard for God. There is nothing impossible with God. Great is our Lord, says Psalm 147.5. Great is our Lord in power. His understanding has no limit. Psalm 93, 1, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Isaiah 55, 11, one of our favorites often quoted. So is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Genesis 17.1 When Avram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Hebrews 7 verse 25 Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Ephesians 1.19 And his incomparably, his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength. 1 Peter 1.5 Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And Jeremiah 32:27, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? And Job 42:2 again for poor old Job. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And Luke 1:37, for nothing is impossible with God. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And in Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere Him. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can hear, 
bear, but only what, excuse me, but only when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. An interesting promise when we are beset by what we think is a temptation that we just can't stand. All right, First Thessalonians 5.24 The one who calls you is faithful and will do it. And then our ninth of the ten essences, immutability. God is absolute stability. God has never been in a slump and He never changes. He can count on, you can count on God to never change. His word is unchangeable. His works are unchanging. The person of Christ and his thinking are immutable. You and I are totally unstable and desperately need the stability of his mind. God is faithful to always deliver us from pressure and testing. God is faithful in the administration of his plan for us and in his provision for us. And once again, 1 Thessalonians 5.24 The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. 1 Peter 1.25 But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Isaiah 40 verse 8 The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Hebrews 6.18 God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. And there are last, our last of the ten, veracity. God is the ultimate example of truth. God is absolute truth. An expression of his righteousness. God's veracity is manifested in his ways. God is said to be full of grace and truth. Man is a liar, but God is truth. Wisdom always existed even before the name of God. Wisdom and truth are synonymous. Deuteronomy 32.4 An example. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he. Psalm 25.10 All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. Psalm 85.10 Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Psalm 10.11 Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. And then Revelation chapter 16 verse 3 as it speaks of the second angel who poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned unto blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. Romans 3 verse 4 Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. John 1 verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, I'm going to conclude this uh, lesson as it relates, of course, to the many essences of God. If the chart, you can see the chart clearly shows God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equal, co-equal and co-infinite and co-eternal. And then the lessons, the essences that we just discussed, sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresent, immutability, and veracity. Now let's see what we can learn from John 5, 25 through 32. I'm going to first read the King James Version, and then I'm going to read the New International Version. KJV, verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father, which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. And then John writes, and is uh, translated in the New International Version, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of God. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who has sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. And of course a reference to old John the Baptist who is going to one day uh, be seen in heaven by each and every one of us who are his believers. He will be quite an illustration because the Lord said of him, remember, there's none like him. He's the great, he will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
All right, I think the best way to study these verses that I've just read in the KJV and then the NIV is to review, at least in part, our doctrine of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And we have that on our, you know, on our, excuse me, <clears throat> our website under Pastor Merritt's study book. So I'm just going to hit the highlights, if you will, of that doctrine. I'm going to start by looking at the New International Version of Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 1, and then we're going to read through verse 20. So here we go. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now dropping down to verse 16 of that chapter 28 of the book of Matthew. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Matthew's account of the resurrection includes fewer details than the accounts of Luke and John. The substantial agreement of the four narratives, coupled with a wide variety of details and viewpoints, demonstrates their truthfulness and yet their independence of one another. Let's look at the KJV now. More information about the discovery of the empty tomb. Chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. And we will read through verse 8. KJV, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, 
For I know that ye seek Jesus who was crucified. And he is not here. No. For he is risen just as he said he would do. Come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold he goeth forth unto Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. In the phrase, the end of the Sabbath, the use of obse, anglicized O-P-S-E, is an improper preposition better translated after. This is now clearly recognized. Therefore, the better translation should be after the Sabbath. Note Mark 16, 1 through 3, Luke 24, 1 and 2, and John 20, verse 1. And let me read Mark 16, 1, 2, and 3. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they ask each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now note Luke 24, 1 and 2. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that had they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And then John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and certain other women came at the break of dawn on Sunday to do the anointing of Jesus' body. You find that, of course, in Matthew 27, verses 56 and verse 61. Or through verse 61. I'm just going to read Matthew 27, 6, and then I'll drop down to verse 61. Among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome the mother of Zebedee's children. And then 61, and there was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the less, and Joseph sitting against another sepulchre. As they approached, an earthquake occurred, and an angel rolled back the great stone from the entrance. Now this was not the moment of, of resurrection, but it was rather intended to reveal the empty tomb to the witnesses. The resurrected Christ was not confined by natural barriers. John 20, verse 19 and verse 26 makes that clear, and must have arisen about sundown on Saturday night. And we've studied that before, and you can certainly find that in on our internet, looking at Pastor Merritt's study books. This is just a, you might say, witch your appetite. You see, it seems that Mary Magdalene immediately left to notify Peter and John, John 20, verses 1 and 2, and did not hear the announcement. He is risen which the angel made to the other women. And then that wonderful statement, He goeth before you into Galilee. And that they did, and that they saw the risen Lord. Not only did He appear to them, but to 500 other people, as Paul says, 
most of him, most of whom were living at the time Paul taught. So I see from the clock it's time to stop. So we'll do that and uh, have a brief invitation. I always like to make sure that I make clear the gospel of salvation. We're all sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you are without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, uh, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Right where you are. Again, whatever you might be doing, just simply tell God the Father that you are believing on God the Son and on the promise of the Word you will be saved. Now, Father, I would ask that uh, you would take that which I have taught today, make it real, in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.